Before I get into the message today, I want to address the situation in Israel, and then I want to invite our church to pray. And this is a, a personal thing for us as a church because you may not know this, but we have six church plants in Israel today that we've been working with a missionary there that we planted six churches. They're affected by this. They're helping in the midst of this. We also have a missions organization that we support as a part of our church that's putting supplies there and helping on the ground. So for those of you that give, thank you. You're involved in what's going on. And what we want to do is we want to pray for the peace of God to intersect in this situation. And we're gonna pray for both Israelis that are affected as well as innocent Palestinians because there's them as well. But I wanna make one thing clear, and that is that Hamas is an evil terrorist organization that attacked Israel without notice and targeted schools and communities with children and women and innocent people. And they raped women. They burned babies. They beheaded soldiers. And they massacred hundreds of people. And my concern as a pastor when I look at the situation is we can't defend against evil if we don't define evil. And it breaks my heart that there's so many people in our world, even here in the United States, that will not acknowledge the evil that has happened. And that's a deep issue going on. So I think it's the time the church, we just say we're going to acknowledge the evil. We're going to call it what it is. We're going to pray for God to intercede to eradicate this evil and to protect the innocent lives involved. But we're going to do what David said to do in Psalm 122. We're going to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Would you do that with me now? Father, we as a church want to call out evil for what it is. And Father, we know it breaks your heart, and we know that there's a special place in your heart for the nation of Israel. It's out of the Jewish people that we got our scriptures. From the Jewish people, we have our Messiah, Jesus. And God, I pray for you to intercede in Israel. I pray for the innocent Palestinians that are being affected. God, there's, there's innocent lives being taken, but God, I pray you eradicate the evil of Hamas so that we can begin to see your peace in that part of our world more and more. God, there's so many attacks all over the world right now, but we just pray on this one that you would bring peace to Israel. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for praying with me as a church for that. I think it's, I think it's really, really important. Hey, as we lean into this week's message, I want to start with a question, and it's this. What is God like? I think that's one of the most important questions you will ever answer in your life. In fact, the theologian A.W. Tozer said it, it may be the most important question you ever answer in life. And I think he's on to something because if you think about it, what you think about God will really dictate how you relate to God and how you relate to God will determine the direction of your life and the direction of your life will ultimately determine your destiny. So do you have a clear picture in your mind of what God's like. What's interesting to me is, is that researchers have now been doing research, and what we're finding is that what we think about God oftentimes says a lot more about what we're like than what God is actually like. Can I, can I explain that? Scott McKnight was a Bible college professor that for years taught a class on Jesus. And every semester he would give the students two surveys. 
The first survey was a survey about the student personally. He would say, what are your likes? What are your dislikes? What are your beliefs? Then he would give them a survey later on about Jesus and say, what's Jesus like? What's Jesus like? What's he dislike? What are his beliefs? You know what he found? 90% of the time, the surveys matched each other. Is that unbelievable? In other words, a student would say, and, and by the way, the students were all different, so their answers were way different, but the student, what he liked and disliked, matched Jesus 90% of the time. In other words, if a student was really passionate about the environment, Jesus is passionate about the environment. The student was really into politics, well, Jesus cares way about politics. If the student was super disciplined, Jesus is a disciplined God, like, he, that's who he is. If the student was, you know, easygoing, like, eh, whatever, well, God's super easygoing, doesn't really care. If the student liked cats over dogs, Jesus liked cats over dogs, right? If the student liked dogs over cats, they were right. They got an A in the class, right? I'm kidding, I'm just joking, settle down. It, but what do we see? This is big. One of the greatest mistakes we can make in the Christian life is relating to God as if he's just like us. And he's not. He's not even close. In fact, listen to this verse in Isaiah chapter 55. This is one of my favorite verses in scripture. God says this, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you can imagine. In fact, he goes on and says, for just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. God is not like you. So when we answer the question, what's God like? One of our greatest barriers is not putting our personal biases to assume that God is just like us. I never thought I'd quote Joe Jonas in church, and I'm getting ready to. Okay, I have two teenage daughters still at home, so they kind of keep me up to speed. He said something recently I thought was so interesting. He was addressing some controversy that was swirling around about him, and he said this. Listen, if it doesn't come out of my lips, don't believe it. And I thought that's pretty good because I think God would say to some of us today, if it doesn't come out of my lips, in other words, my word, this is God's spoken word into our lives. God said, if it doesn't come from me, don't believe it. So what we've been doing in this series is we've been turning to one passage of scripture in Exodus 34 where God speaks out of his own lips. This isn't a prophet speaking. This isn't someone else speaking for God. This is God speaking for himself saying, this is exactly who I am. This is the most quoted verse in scripture and I think one of the most powerful. And I love the context of this verse. Before I read it to you, let me see the context of it. This is Moses talking to God and he's frustrated. Because Moses is like, God, I just wanna know you. You've told me to leave, lead these people, all these people, like a million plus Israelites, how am I supposed to lead them if I don't know you? You ever felt frustrated with God? Like God, how am I supposed to know what to do if I don't exactly know who you are? And when you ask God to reveal himself to you, that's a prayer God will always answer. And some of you are in church today because God wants you to know exactly who he is. And so Moses asks, God takes him up to a mountain. 
He says, I'm going to pass by you. You can't see me, but I'm going to reveal myself to you. Listen to the epic nature of this verse. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. God's passing by. He says, Moses, I'm the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. God says these five attributes are exactly who I am. And in this series, we've been taking one of these attributes each week to explain so all of us can have a better understanding of who God is so it can direct our lives in the direction God wants us to go. And today I'm going to talk about the third attribute that God is slow to anger. How many of you today, very honestly, raise your hands across all of our campuses, would say, when it comes to my character, I'm a person that's really slow to anger. Like, patience is my virtue. I just don't get angry very easy at all. Anybody out there? I see very few hands at where I'm at. And by the way, I'm not raising my hand. Not even close. In fact, throughout my life, this has been one of my life's struggles. I lack patience. I can get angry pretty quickly if you ask my wife and my kids, and that's where you get the truth. If you want to know something about someone, ask their wife and kids, spouse and kids. And I've just struggled with this. I mean, just this past week, this is so dumb. I had my family, we were out one night, and we drove through the fast food uh, restaurant, uh, White Castle. Anybody driven through the, the line of White Castle before? It is anything but fast. It's unbelievable. And I'm not over-exaggerating. You can ask them. We waited in a fast food line to get our food for 30 minutes. And my wife is trying to calm me. I'm like, my, my, I'm boiling. I'm like, White Castle, you're not making filet mignon. You're making a cheap slider. What is happening here? I couldn't believe it. Now, that's the kind of story that you would expect from a pastor who's talking about their anger struggles, right? Like, oh, you got mad in a fast food line? Way to go. <laughs> I promise you, there are examples in my life that I am ashamed of, that my anger has got the best of me. And I'll just tell you one of them in a spirit of transparency, because that's how I like to preach. I was in my third year of Bible college, Bible college, studying the Bible, okay? <laughs> And I was home over the summer living in Phoenix with my childhood best friend, all right? And we decided to go to a movie. We went to a movie at Arizona Mills Mall, if you've ever been out there. I was living in Chandler at the time. And we went to the movie, and we walked in the movie theater, and it was literally empty. There was no one in the movie theater except for us, maybe a couple other people. There's hundreds of seats open. We sat down, and right before the movie started, two teenage boys walked in, and for whatever reason, they decided to sit directly right behind us. Now, that's weird in and of itself, but I'm like, they're teenagers. I don't know. Not a big deal. Halfway through the movie, one of them put his feet up on my chair and started rocking my chair back and forth. Again, they're teenagers. I wasn't, wasn't going to make a big deal out of it. I was just going to turn around and let them know, hey, you're rocking my chair. I said it pretty nicely, and he gives me this dirty look as I turn around, and he puts his feet up, and he starts rocking it harder. The more he rocks, the more the anger swells up inside of me. Now, I could have done anything. I could have moved seats. 
I could have done something else. There was tons of seats open, but I didn't. I just boiled. And he kept rocking. I kept boiling. The movie was getting ready to end, and I don't know what happened. I snapped. I turned around, and I said, you, me, outside, it's on right now. And I walked out, and he followed. And you're thinking like, dude, look, look at your body. You're not even that big. What are you doing? You know? He was 16 years old, probably five foot four. I'm almost six foot two. And I was like, it's on. Let's go. So your pastor, <laughs> literally, I walked all the way out to the parking lot and I was not backing down. I was throwing down. I was like, I don't care. I'm going to beat this kids in the ground. Okay. That's how mad I was. I got out to the parking lot. It's like, what am I going to do? Like strip my shirt off, be like, you know, like get all like karate kid on them. Like, I don't know. But I was going to throw down. I have my fists and it's getting ready to go down. And by God's grace, we're in a parking lot getting ready to throw down. And my childhood best friend intercedes and breaks up the fight. And without him there, I don't know what would have happened. We get in the car and my childhood best friend who'd grown up with me my whole entire life, he looked at me and he said to this day, one of the most convicting things anyone's ever said to me, he looked at me and he said, you have a temper just like your dad. And it's gonna destroy your life. And I was like, I have a temper and I throat punched him right in the right in the tire. It's like, <laughs> I'm just kidding, I didn't throat punch him. But I kind of wanted to. I was deeply convicted to my core. Because I had realized that because of my background, because of a lot of experiences I had growing up, I just, I had some anger stuff inside of me. And some of you have the same. Like you could tell a story like that of when anger got the best of you and you're so ashamed of what happened with a wife or a kid or something. I realize now that, that I struggle with this thing and I've worked so hard, I really have worked so hard to become a person that is slower to get angry, but I'll just put my cards on the table today. Without this verse, I'm not sure that I would look at God as a God that is slow to anger. And I think that's more of a reflection of me than it is of God. And I've talked to a, a lot of people, and as a pastor, I have a theory about what develops your view of God, and this is just my theory, okay? My theory is this, is that your view of God is dictated primarily by three things. One is how you were raised by your parents, primarily your father or your lack thereof. Two is your experience, the kind of church you grew up in and how they view God. And if you didn't grow up in church, it would be your experience with other Christians and what they taught you God is like. And third would be how you've dealt with pain in your life. And I think those three things affect your view of God more than anything else. And we have to realize that many of us have a distorted image of God. And today, I want to talk to you about this, this thing called anger. Is God angry at you? And I've talked to so many people, and I really think a lot of people think one of two extremes. Number one, they would think that God is always angry. Like lightning's flashing down, you mess up, God will strike you. In fact, I've talked to so many people, when I invite them to CCV, they say, oh, I couldn't go to church. If I stepped in a church building, I would get what? Struck by lightning. They've literally said that to me, which is a view 
of an angry God. Now, while that's true of so many people, I think in today's day and age, we almost have the opposite issue. We think God is on the other end of the spectrum. He is extremely tolerant. Like God has a peace sign and he's like, do whatever you want. Like this would be your view that God's kind of like that parent when you grew up. You know how there was always that one parent that they let the party happen at their house and they bought the beer, they bought the weed. You know, you had that friend that's like, dude, my parents let me have sex in my room and it's not a big deal. You're like, what? Someone heard weed, they're like, that's my kind of God right there, man. Right? I mean, this is like, you think God is kind of like your homie. We talked about this in the sexuality series, remember? Like, you do you and just follow your heart and God's like your homie. He's your friend. He's like, I'll just support you in whatever you do. Now, those are the extremes, but what is an accurate view when it comes to God's anger? And today, I want to answer three questions when it comes to God, anger, and me. So we have a biblical view of this. And the first question we've already been talking about a little bit, which is this. Is God extremely tolerant or is he always angry? Which is it? And the answer is what? It's neither. God is, what are we told? Slow to anger. Which means that anger is not a primary attribute or characteristic of God. He's slow to anger. And slow to anger, you might summarize it this way, it's kind of a big idea for today. You can make God mad, but you have to work crazy, really hard at it. Now to understand this idea of God being slow to anger, I think it's, this is a time that it's important to turn to kind of the original language. When the Bible was written in Hebrew, when it used the word slow to anger, that's a Hebrew, that's two Hebrew words, and literally it is translated long of nostrils. That's literally the translation. So if you wanted to have a takeaway today, you're like, hey, what'd you talk about in church? That God has these crazy long nostrils. Or as some translations would say, he has a long nose. The King James Version translates it long-suffering, which I, I kind of like. What does it mean that God has a long nose or long nostrils? Well, think about this. Throughout different cultures at different times, people have had different ways of expressing their anger. And it changes from one culture to another. For example, in America today, in Phoenix, if you're driving on the freeway and you accidentally cut someone off and they got angry at you, what's the universal symbol to show you they're angry. What is it? It's the bird, right? I'm not gonna give it to you because someone would like screenshot that, right? And they'd be like, our pastor flips us off all the time. <laughs> like, come on, man. You know, but it's the bird. And if they're really mad, they give you the double bird, right? Did you know that's not a universal symbol for anger in all cultures at all times? In Japan, did you know the finger, when you give the finger, that's sign language for brother? Hey, brother. You're my brother. Double fingers means siblings. It does, so the next time someone gives you the double bird on the freeway, just roll your window down and be like, see you at Thanksgiving. <laughs> Such a stupid joke. Anyways, we, we know that, that we have different you know, symbols or expressions of anger based on different cultures. But you know what scientists have found? Scientists have studied humanity, and especially the human face, and they've discovered there is one universal trait for anger, 
in all cultures, all people for all time. You know what it is? Our nostrils flare. I mean, just the next time you get in a big fight, I'm not talking about the little one, I'm talking about like a big fight with your boyfriend or girlfriend or spouse, just watch their nostrils when they get angry. I mean, it's like, oh, I will destroy you. You know, it's like, whoa, your nostrils are big. You know, it's like, it's like earlier in the message, you know where I saw it? When I said, God loves dogs over cats, cat people everywhere, nostrils flaring everywhere. I see it. It's like this little girl, you know, it's like you look at the picture and it's like, I hate you, pastor. You know, it's like, this is what scientists call the universal anger face. Now, we do things with our lips, we purse our lips and our eyes get dipped, but the nostrils flare. And what are we told about God? That he has long nostrils, which means what? It takes a long time for God to get angry. Isn't that a beautiful picture of God that's so different than so many people in our world today? Again, slow to anger means you can make God mad, but you have to work really hard at it. And we see this all throughout scripture, right? I mean, think about the examples in scripture. Um, Even when we talk about Exodus, when God sent Moses to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's an evil man. He's enslaved the, the Israelites, and God gives him 10 chances before he unleashes his anger or his wrath on Pharaoh. He gives him plague after plague after plague after plague, and they kind of build, and eventually there's one at the end that's really, really bad. But, but God's anger is slow. But eventually, his wrath is revealed. And, and anger and wrath, you know, similar words in Scripture And this is where some of us struggle because I've heard people say, I can't believe in a loving God who has wrath. And it's the second question I want to answer for you today. People might word it this way. If God is love, why would he ever get angry? Why would he ever show his wrath? And the answer is, God can't be loving if he doesn't get angry. Did you know that? Now, we, we, we separate these two things, but if you thought about it rationally today, you would truly understand there are, aren't there times where it's very appropriate and the loving response is to get angry? I mean, every single time you hear about an innocent child that is sold into sex slavery by their family, every time you hear about an innocent elderly widow that's taken advantage of by a con man and he takes all of their money. Every time you hear about a rape or a murder or a genocide or a pedophile who was called uncle. This past week, if you're following the news in Israel, there were women captured by Hamas walking through the streets and there's blood running down their legs because they've just been raped by men or multiple men. And if that doesn't get you angry, I don't know who you are. Is it not appropriate for there to be a a righteous anger? Some people say, I I can't believe in a God of wrath. And my answer would be, you can't not believe in one. 
That would not be a loving God that would never get mad at the Hitlers and the Stalins and the evil of this world. That's not a loving God. And some of you want to respond. You want to be like, well, that's fine for like terrorists and rapists, but I'm just like a normal person. I'm just a good person trying to live my life and do what I want to do and just kind of, why would God get mad at me? Why would he just let me do whatever I wanted to do? No loving father or parent would allow their kids to do whatever they wanted to do. Would it be loving, would we call a loving dad someone that let their kids run into oncoming traffic when he saw the traffic and the kid was oblivious to it? Just go do it. We send parents like that, we report them to CPS. And you're thinking, I'm not a kid though, I'm an adult. You don't think your heavenly father still sees oncoming traffic and danger that you don't see when you operate outside of his boundaries and when you're living in sin? You don't think God cares about you? You don't think out of his love for you as a good, loving father that it doesn't matter to him when you stray? He is not indifferent to how you operate. I love this quote. The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference. Some of you should write that down and meditate on this. The opposite of love isn't hate and it's not even anger. The opposite of love is when you're indifferent. Some of you here today, your greatest pain in your life or one of your greatest pains is when you were growing up you had parents that were indifferent. And you began to stray down a path that was so dangerous and so destructive in your life, or they allowed a person to enter into your home that was dangerous and they were indifferent. And you would give anything for them in their love to just get angry, to, to, to draw you back, to not allow some of the things and to, to to do more. Now, some of you had the opposite of that, overbearing parents, but a lot of you had parents that were too indifferent. And indifference isn't love. I mean, think about when there's an affair. If a spouse that's been cheated on is indifferent, that's not love. That's an indication of hate. That's an indication that they don't even care. They're not loving at all. God is not indifferent with you. He cares too much about you. And this is where people might say something like this. Well, that's God, but I'm kind of like a Jesus guy. Like I like Jesus and he's got a lamb and he's like super warm and fuzzy and cuddly. There's almost this character of Jesus today where he's like Mr. Rogers in a vest and God's like on a throne with a lightning bolt. It's like I kind of like Jesus because he's like soft. If that's your view of Jesus, remember Jesus is the perfect image of who God is. They completely match. They're not different. Did Jesus get angry? You better believe he did. Read the, read the Gospels. Jesus is in the temple one day throwing over the tables with a whip in his hand. Jesus got mad at the disciples because they wouldn't let the kids come to, come to him. He got mad at the Pharisees for keeping outsiders on the outside. What gets Jesus mad? What gets God mad? When we allow injustice and when we allow outsiders to stay outside and we won't invite them in to hear about Jesus, which is why we'll never be that kind of church. But Jesus got mad. And if you think Jesus isn't about judgment, 
No one in the New Testament talked more about the coming day of judgment than Jesus. No one. What was the main message of Jesus? It wasn't like, he was, Jesus wasn't a hippie with a peace sign. What's up, man? Jesus was a savior that went to a cross to die for you. And his main message in scripture, let's listen to it in Mark chapter one. Jesus said this over and over again, the kingdom of God is near, repent of your sins and believe the good news. Jesus' message was about repentance. Repentance is a word that means to make a U-turn, to turn. In other words, repentance is this idea that a lot of us, we're on a road and the road in our life is leading to destruction because we're, we're not following God in his ways. We're on a road of destruction and repentance is literally making a U-turn and going the other direction. Because God knows if you stay on this road, at the end of this road is wrath, it's destruction. So how do we avoid God's wrath? This is the third question I wanna answer for you today. What do we do to avoid God's anger, his wrath? It's very simple, it's, it's the word Jesus used. We repent, we turn, and it means to turn around and start following, or for some of us today, to start re-following Jesus, because we made a decision at some point, and we've fallen away, and that's even why you're here. Now what does it look like when you start going down this path for there to be God's wrath or God's anger. What does that look like? Now listen, one day there's a judgment. When we all die and we face God, there's a judgment. And we either get heaven or we get eternal damnation. But while we're here on earth, what does it look like to experience God's wrath when we're not following Jesus and we need to repent? Can I tell you the most common language used in scripture? It's that God hands us over or gives us over to our own doing. Now this is powerful. Let me, let me read it to you from the book of Romans. Book of Romans was written to a culture that sexually, financially, morally had completely turned away from God. And Paul describes in Romans chapter one what happened to these people as they turned from God. He says this in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over. Can you say the bold out loud with me? God what? God gave them over. You hear, hear the language? What did he give them over to? To their sinful desires, to their hearts, to sexual impurity. Verse 26, God, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Verse 28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Again and again, Paul repeats this phrase, which is used in scripture that God hands us over, God gives us over to our own doing and says, you wanna follow your ways instead of my ways? I will remove my hand of blessing and I'm gonna give you over to what you're doing. And it's destruction. God doesn't want it we are choosing it. And what I love about God is God doesn't use anger to turn us back. He uses, primarily uses love because God is slow to anger. And by the way, if you want a good picture of what this looks like, every parent here that has an adult child knows probably what I'm talking about. See, when your kids are young, as a parent, you kind of get to direct them and guide them along the right path. But there comes a day around the age 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 or 20 or 21 when your child's an adult 
And they get to make their own decisions, and they may or may not choose to follow in the path that you've tried to guide them on. And at some point, you have to release them and hand them over to their own decisions, many of them very, very destructive. And it's so hard as a parent because you are angry, not in a human sort of way, in a righteous way because you love your kids so much and you see the destruction they're on, but you can't control them anymore. They're an adult and you have to hand them over. And in the same way, God will hand us over to our own doing if we choose sexually, financially, morally, with our parenting, with all of our decisions to go outside of his bounds. God says, I remove my hand of blessing and you get to go on your own. And it leads to a path of destruction, and God's drawing us back. You might say, well, how would I experience that anger of God if I go down that destructive path? Remember, it could be a bunch of ways, and it's your own doing. Your body can be broken because of the effects of drug and alcohol. And it's where some of you are. God gave you over to that thing. You can keep losing job after job or miss promotion after promotion because you lie too much or you self-promote too much. You won't, you won't serve others around you. Your kids may not even want to talk to you when you're grown because you decided to chase after taking them to the lake and sporting games instead of getting them plugged into church. You, you just had different priorities and you missed out on it or you just were so angry with them all the time and you've never really apologized. You can experience you know, this in your sex life. It's broken because of the effects of porn. Or you can go from marriage and marriage to marriage and it just keeps falling apart because there continues to be infidelity. You know, sometimes we think like getting caught in an affair is the wrath of God, and it is not. That's the mercy of God. The wrath of God is when you continue in the affair and you lose all peace and you may lose everything that's important to you. God is a God that is slow to anger. He doesn't want that for you. You're choosing it. That's why I love what 2 Peter says, 3.9, it says, the Lord is, is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, guys, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance, to turning back to him. Remember the prodigal son story? The father's so slow to anger, he's waiting for his son to come back home. And I wanna tell some of you here, God has been waiting on you for so long. His nostrils are so long for you right now. Honestly, he, he wants you back home. But if you continue to follow your own path, he will hand you over to your own doing. How's life going outside of God and his plans for you? What does repentance look like? It looks different for all of us. It could be getting help for an addiction. It could be calling your wife and apologizing and saying, I was wrong. I'm so sorry. It could be telling your kids, you deserve better. I wasn't the best parent, but I can do better. Would you forgive me? 
There's ways to turn back to God, but you have to choose it. And listen, God's not getting furious with you. He's slow to anger because he wants to draw every person here to repentance. And I want to close today just praying for all of us that whatever God's calling us back to, we'd come back to a loving God that is so slow to anger and wants us back. Can we pray that today? Father, I want to pray for the man in the audience right now that has lost a lot and thinks life is over. But God, if he would turn back to you, you could renew and restore his life to what he wants to be, but it's gonna take repentance. I pray for the woman here today that's, that's steeped in shame and what she's done or what someone did to her, she sits in that shame all the time and would you help her understand that God, you're not mad. You're slow to that and you wanna draw her back to you. I pray for the teenager that doesn't feel worth today and thinks you're angry God, you're not an angry God. You're slow to anger, drawing all people back to you. Would we turn to you today, whatever that means for us, and make a decision to repent, for some of us even to get baptized, so we can give our lives fully to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to continue this series next week. And until then, let's keep praying for the situation in Israel. CCV, I love you. Have a great week.